You are listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more media content or to find out more about our church, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. That's whitefieldschurch.com. How many of you have ever you've been trained for a job and uh, you know you go through all the training, right? And you've been prepared to do particular tasks, but then eventually that day does come, doesn't it? When the training's over, and now it's time for you to step in and, and do that job. Or how about when you become a parent for the first time? Some of you remember this, and some of you maybe still looking forward to this. But what happens when you become a parent for the first time is you read all these books, right? And you get ready, and you get a lot of advice from other people. But eventually that day comes when you take the baby home, and then all of a sudden it's just like you and the baby. And now you got to deal with that, right? Uh, these are the kind of situations that we, we use this phrase for these kind of situations called a baptism by fire. Uh, another way of looking at it is kind of like being thrown into the deep end, right? Like you know, you've kind of seen other people swim and you know how swimming works in theory. But when you get thrown into the deep end, you actually have to do it. And that's the very situation that, the, that Jesus' disciples found themselves in here in the first chapter of the book of Acts. Jesus had been preparing and training and teaching his disciples for three years. But now the time has come... Uh, where we left off last week, where Jesus has now given his final instructions to his disciples, and he then ascended into heaven. So now, whether they feel ready for it or not, it is now time for them to step up, and it's time for them to apply all these things that Jesus has taught them over the past three years. This is what we would call a baptism by fire. Uh, right before he left, Jesus told them, he said, okay, guys, here's the mission. You're going to be my witnesses, and I want you to begin by being my witnesses right here. Uh, I want you to be witnesses with your lives and with your words. You're going to be witnesses right here in Jerusalem, where you're at right now. And then you're going to go out into the surrounding region, and eventually I want you to go to the ends of the earth and take this news of the gospel to all people. In other words, Jesus is kind of saying, okay, guys, here's the plan, here's the mission. I want you to go and change the world and tell everybody about me. All right, good? Okay, see you later. That's what he did. And so, so now here they are, and ready or not, Jesus is gone, and now he's left them with no small thing to do. This is a humongous thing that he's called them to do. And last week, we read how after Jesus ascended into heaven, his disciples just kind of stood there, and it says that they just kept staring continuously up at the sky for a long time. Jesus was gone. Now, in one way, it they might have just kept staring at the sky because they just saw something amazing. But on the other hand, I kind of think that they also kept just staring up at the sky because they couldn't believe that now they were really on their own. Like, what do we do now, right? Like, Jesus has always been here to tell us what to do. I can't believe he's really gone. And now what? We've got to carry out this mission. We don't even know where to begin. This revolution that's supposed to change the world, we've got to carry this out now on our own? They, they've been thrown into the deep end, and now they've got to swim. It's a baptism by fire. But here's the thing. It wasn't really the case, though, that they had to do this on their own. Because Jesus had promised them that when he left, he would send them what he called the helper. The helper, the Holy Spirit, to lead them and to guide them, to teach them and to empower them, uh, just as he had always done, to, to remind them and, and to push them forward. Not only that, again, he said the Holy Spirit would empower them for this mission that he had called them to do. In other words, he had given them a calling, and he's also giving them the means to carry out that calling through the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper, he was talking about 
kind of telling them, guys, I'm really going to go. And we read there in the Gospel of John that Jesus went so far as to tell his disciples that it was actually better for them that he go away. Because he said, if I go away, then I will send you the Holy Spirit in my place. Now, it must have been pretty difficult for the disciples to really accept what Jesus was saying there when he told them that it would be better for them if he went away. I mean, how could that possibly be better for them? How could it be better for them to not have their friend, their teacher, their leader physically by their side as he had been for the past three wonderful years? I mean, even for me, I don't know about you, but for me, it's hard to comprehend how anything could possibly be better than having Jesus by my side in the flesh to talk to and get instruction from. I've never had that, but I envy these disciples who did have that. But yet Jesus says, it is better for you that I go. See, the reason it was better for them that Jesus go away was because Jesus had another baptism by fire in mind for these disciples. Way back when Jesus began his ministry, there was a man on the scene. He was actually a cousin of Jesus. His name was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a, he was a wild man. He was a radical man. He lived out in the wilderness. He's kind of like what we would think of in Colorado as like a, a mountain man. Like if you've ever been up to Ward, right? People who just live in shacks and they've got like beards and they just eat fruits and stuff like that. Right? He lived in the wilderness and he wore clothes made of animal skins and he survived by eating wild honey and locusts. Right? So you can just imagine this guy with this crazy look in his eyes. He's got this big scraggly beard. He's got bug legs hanging out of his teeth. Right? And he's, he's calling people to repent. If I saw a guy like that walking up to me in the wilderness, I'd probably want to repent too. I'd do whatever he told me to do. And he says, repent of your sins and you need to turn back to God because God is going to send the Messiah soon. The Messiah is coming, and you need to get ready. So John's job, John the Baptist's job, his mission was to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. But interestingly, this is what we read that John told people. We read this in two of the Gospels. He says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so today we're going to see the fulfillment of that. We're going to see this, uh, we're going to study these events that happened around the day of Pentecost when the disciples received a baptism by fire in more ways than one. So please read with me, if you would, from Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Then they, that's the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So all these disciples... They, they returned to Jerusalem. Remember, that is what Jesus told them to do. He said, I want you to return to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which was this baptism with the Holy Spirit. So they returned to Jerusalem, just as Jesus told them to do. They're obeying Jesus, which is always a good thing to do. And they're together in one place, perhaps even in the same upper room where they had shared the Last Supper. It's imaginable that that's where they went. And we read in the next verse, in verse 15, that there were about 120 of them gathered in this upper room. Now, they've been given a mission to go and change the world, to go to the ends of the earth. But, but look at this. There's only 120 of them. What can they do? 
They don't have anything. They don't have any money. They don't have any technology. Nobody knows who they are. How are these people going to change the world? But among these 120, there are some interesting names that are worth taking note of. First of all, we read that there were 11 disciples. Remember, you got the original 12 minus Judas, who betrayed Jesus, and then after he betrayed Jesus, tragically committed suicide. So we've got 11 disciples, that's 12 minus Judas. Then we also read that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. This is interesting because this is actually the last mention we have of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the entire Bible. We don't read anything about anything else she did. We don't read anything about her death. This is the last time Mary's mentioned, and I love this. Look what she's doing here the last time we see her. She's in a prayer meeting, praying and waiting to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the most interesting one, though, that we read is that Jesus' brothers were there. Now, this is reference to Jesus' half-brothers, right? Because they're the children of Joseph and Mary who were born after Jesus was born. And, uh, and we know that some of these men, we know who some of these men were because they actually became leaders later on in the Christian church. Uh, some of these men were James the half-brother of Jesus. He's the one who wrote the book of James. We've also got Jude, who wrote the letter of Jude. Now, there are several mentions of Jesus' brothers in the Gospels, but what's interesting is that when you read through the Gospels, during Jesus' ministry, it seems that his brothers did not receive him as the Messiah. They didn't believe him. In fact, it says that they, they treated him and considered him to be kind of nuts and out there and crazy. I mean, it must have been very difficult growing up with a brother who claims to be the Messiah. I mean, on one hand, if you have a brother, you might uh, think, if my brother claimed to be the Messiah, I might be a little bit skeptical. I can kind of understand. On the other hand, you know, you grew up with this guy who is living a, a sinless life, and you can imagine what it's like growing up in that household, right? Like, how many times do you have to hear your parents say, why can't you be more like your brother, right? Why can't you be more like Jesus? Look at him. But, but now you see that after his death and his resurrection, Jesus' brothers now believe. They've been converted. Now they... Their relationship with Jesus has changed. Not only now is he their half-brother, but now they know him in a different way. They know him as the Savior. They know him as their Lord. And these brothers of Jesus have been convinced by his life and death and resurrection. They too are in the upper room waiting for what Jesus has promised them, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in order that they might be filled, that they might carry out this enormous task of taking the gospel to the people and leading a worldwide revolution. And we read that they were gathered there with one accord. It must have been very difficult for them to share one car between all those people. This is a joke I only get to make when I teach this book, so I'm just going to go for it, okay? So like, I mean, 120 people with one accord. Kind of like, you know, it's kind of like at the circus. You see how many uh, clowns you can fit in a in a uh, Volkswagen? Well, how many disciples can you fit in one Accord? 120. That's the answer. My wife and I have had to share a car before. It was also a Honda. But, uh, you know, I realize this is a midsize. We got kind of a compact. But, I mean, it must have been difficult. I realize you don't have to drive much back in the day. But only to have one Accord between 120 people, that's, uh, that's tough. All right, I'm done. But, <laughs> but the fact is, right, that these people... Thank you. <laughs> The fact is that these people uh, were together in the same place, and they were all in one accord, and it's actually somewhat of a, a small miracle in itself that they were in one accord. Because if you look at these disciples, uh, you know, throughout the Gospels, they're often arguing, they're often bickering with each other, they're often kind of at each other's throats. But, but here, they're together in one place with one focus and in one accord. That's a big deal, because Jesus' disciples, they hadn't always got along. 
And a big part of the reason why they didn't get along is because they were so different. Jesus had purposefully chosen people from really different walks of life to be his disciples. I mean, they, they had different political views. They, some were educated, some were not. They had different occupations. Different, they were from different strata of society. Jesus had purposefully chosen a diverse group of people to be his disciples. He chose some simple fishermen. He also chose tax collectors who would have been educated people. But they were people who supported the Roman occupation of Israel, even if not in theory, they did it in practice by collecting taxes for the Romans. And then he chose this other guy. He's maybe my favorite that he chose. He's like Simon the Zealot. This would be the equivalent of today, like a Black Panther or a skinhead. I mean, these are political radical. And what the Zealots did is that they so opposed the Roman occupation of Israel, they would carry these little hooked daggers, and they would their goal was to assassinate Roman officials by sneaking up on them and killing them. That was kind of what the zealots did. They were trying to incite this kind of chaos to overthrow the Roman Empire. So Jesus chose one of those guys to be his disciples as well. You know, you can imagine that there you got the tax collector guy who supports the Roman Empire, and then you got the zealot guy over here who likes to kill people like the tax collector, and Jesus says, okay, now we're all going to be one group together. I'm going to make you family. These are people who apart from Jesus, would have had nothing to do with each other. Jesus brought these people together, and he called them to follow him, and as they followed him, he gave them a new identity. And that's so important. Formerly, these people had found their identity in their jobs, in their political views, things like that, but Jesus gave them a new identity, one that superseded politics, one that superseded occupations or levels of education. Their new identity was that they were disciples of Jesus. And this is something that has characterized Christianity since the very beginning, that people of diverse backgrounds, people from different parts of society, they set aside their differences and they come together because they receive a new identity in Jesus Christ, an identity not based on their achievements or credentials or lack thereof, but based on what Jesus Christ has done for them and who God has made them to, or who Jesus has made them to be before God. And they unite around one mission to bring the good news of the love of God and Jesus Christ to the world. Please read with me from verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So Peter stands up here in this assembly and he says two things about Judas. First he says what Judas did by betraying Jesus was terrible. But Judas' evil deed did not thwart or spoil God's plans. In fact, God used what Judas did to fulfill his plans that he had had from eternity. Because the scriptures had to be fulfilled. The Old Testament scriptures said that the Messiah would be betrayed and that he would suffer and that he would die for the sins of the people. So Peter is pointing out something to these people. What he's doing is he's pointing out to them the providence of God in their current circumstances. 
The message of God's loving providence, it really is such an important message that all of us need to hear, that God is bigger than evil. I hope you know that in your life today, that God is bigger than evil, that God can use even bad things for good because God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Do you know that? Do you really know that in your life? Do you know that the things in your life that have happened, the bad things, the evil things, God is bigger than those things. And he loves you so much that he can use even those bad things that have happened to you, even the bad things that you may have done yourself. He can use them for good and for the fulfillment of his plan. That's providence. And Peter points out to these believers the loving providence and the grace of God in their current circumstances. The second thing that Peter says is that he quotes from two different psalms and he says, guys, here is what God's word says about what we're experiencing right now. Wow, what a pastor, right? That's what pastors are supposed to do. Here's what God's word says about our current situation. And this is a side of Peter we've never seen before. We've seen Peter the fisherman. We've seen Peter the guy who's more enthusiastic than he is intelligent. But we've never seen Peter the Bible scholar before. We've never seen Peter the pastor. We've never seen Peter the preacher. But here's what's happened. As this simple fisherman, as he spent time with Jesus over the course of three years, guess what? He became a student of the Bible, and he became a pastor because he had been pastored by Jesus, and he saw how Jesus had pastored him and pastored others, and he picked that up, and he became a preacher because now, guess what? He's got a message to share that he can't not talk about, and for three years being with Jesus, Peter is now a changed man. After three years of spending time every day with Jesus, Peter has become well, a lot like Jesus. He's doing things now. He's saying things that Jesus would have done, that Jesus would have said. And you know that? Do you know that? That the people that you spend a lot of time with, that you will become like them? It's kind of inevitable. And, and why, that's why it's so important for us to be intentional about who we spend our time with, the people that we surround ourselves with. If you spend time with Jesus like Peter did, inevitably you will become more like him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul the Apostle, he says that as we behold Jesus, as you look to him daily, you are being transformed more and more into his likeness. And you know what? There's nothing better than to be like Jesus. Really, Jesus was the embodiment of everything that's good and true and desirable. He was strong, he was compassionate, he was gentle, he was fierce, he was happy, he was joyful, he was lighthearted, but he was also serious. He was attentive, he was full of love, he was full of the light of life. He was heroic, he was gracious, he was pure, he was everything that you find attractive and endearing in other people. Jesus was and is all of those things. And to be like him is really what all of us ultimately desire to be. It's what we desire, it's what we look for in other people. And, and see, with Peter, the way to become like Jesus is to spend time beholding him. Jesus takes roughneck fishermen and turns them into scholars and pastors and preachers and people who change the world. He takes corrupt tax collectors. He takes skinheads and, and people who stab other people. And he makes them honest men who love God and who love people more than they love money or themselves. And he will take you from the person you are right now and he will make you more like him as you spend time with him. But you know what's interesting, right, is that there might be a sense in which you think, well, 
if I become more like Jesus, well then, if he's making all of us be more like Jesus, then he's gonna just, we're all just going to be kind of monolithic, right? We're all just going to be the same. And we'll lose the things about us that are unique. But you know what? That's not true. As Peter became more like Jesus, he didn't cease to be Peter. But you know what? He became the truest Peter that God created him to be. It was by being around Jesus that Peter became the fullest, truest version of Peter that God created him to be. The Peter we've seen before, the Peter who denies Jesus, the Peter who, who returns to fishing because he's depressed, right? That Peter is only a shadow of the Peter who we know and love because that's the Peter who God created him to be. And when you give your life over to God and you say, Lord, I'm yours, you don't need to be afraid of losing what makes you unique. No, much to the contrary, it is only in giving your life to God that you can become the true person who God created you to be. So Peter says here, we need to replace Judas. Now think about everything they've done so far. So far, everything they've done has been great. It's been exemplary, right? Okay, so they've obeyed Jesus. That was the first thing. That's good. So then they were united, and that's awesome. And then they prayed together, which is also very good. And it says that they sought God's will in the scriptures. Well, this is all good, right? Well, okay, it's all good until now, but here's where it gets a little bit weird. From verse 21. So one of the men who has, have accompanied us during the time that the Lord Jesus went in and, and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, uh, you know, uh, you who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, some people look at this, and they say, oh, wait a second here. So you're telling me that they basically rolled dice in order to determine who the next apostle should be. Are you kidding me? Like, they pulled straws. And, hey, one of them's going to win, and this guy wins, so he's the next apostle. You're like, is that really how we choose apostles, right? That seems kind of strange. Now, what they did was they, they used some criteria, and they narrowed it down to two men, and they determined that these men were qualified for the job, Joseph and Matthias. And they said, okay, God, which of these two do you want it to be? And then they rolled dice. Now, here's the thing that makes it more interesting. A little bit later in the book of Acts, we're going to read about a man named Paul, and Paul is going to become an apostle. Now, there are some who think that this whole picking of Matthias by rolling dice and narrowing it down to two guys and rolling dice between them, that that was a big mistake. A lot, there are some people who think that. Uh, they think that these guys were correct in discerning that someone needed to take Judas's place, but that they were incorrect, they were wrong about how they went about it, the process. Because they tried to, they, they put this situation in place where God had to choose between one of the two options that they set forth for God to choose from. And it's quite possible, at least this is the argument, that, that who God really chose was Paul to fill this role. But these guys didn't know about Paul and they didn't think that far ahead. So rather than waiting on God to do his thing and his timing, they forced this decision to happen and they picked a new apostle by rolling the dice. Now, I don't know. 
I don't know if that's the case or not. But to make it even more interesting, in the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, we read this, that the names of the 12 apostles are written on the 12 foundations of heaven. Did you catch that? 12 apostles. Kind of makes you wonder, right? Because uh, it looks right now like if you add Paul to this mix, it looks like we got 13. So who is the real 12th apostle? Is it Matthias or is it Paul? It's just something we're going to have to check out when we get there. If you get there before me, then I, I encourage you to go check it out. There's a sense in which Paul himself says that he is an apostle. But he's different than the other apostles. He says it's like he was born, born out of due season, right? He was born later. Because he's a little bit different in the sense that he did not walk with Jesus like some of these, uh, like all these other apostles did. And even also more interesting, there are other people after Paul who were also given the title of apostle, right? So in the end, we do have more than 12 apostles. But the question is, who are the 12, right? Is it Matthias or, or was it meant to be Paul? I don't know. But I do know this, that sometimes we do the same thing that these guys did, right? Here's what we do. We say, okay, God, I'm going to give you two options. You can choose door A or choo choose door B. But I'm going to leave it up to you, God. You know, whatever you want, as long as it's one of these two, right? And so uh, go ahead, you know, <laughs> take your choice. In other words, we, we limit God in what he might do. We say, okay, God, here you go. You choose. You can give me A or B. God, which one of these two do you want for me? The problem is that sometimes God has something else in mind. He doesn't want to give you A or B. He wants to give you C, which you don't even know exists, right? Uh, it's not even on your radar. Like, God, do you want it to be Matthias or Joseph? Uh, which one of these two? And maybe God would say, well, I don't want it to be either. I want it to actually be Paul. Well, they would say, well, who's Paul? We don't even know Paul, except there's this one guy named Saul, but he's not even a Christian. You don't want to choose that guy. I mean, he doesn't even like us. He hates us, actually. Surely you can't mean him. Well, you know, clearly, uh, I, th I think that many times we try to limit God. We do this same kind of thing where we tell him, okay, God, here's your options. I'm going to give you options that you can choose between. But the truth is that our loving Heavenly Father, he knows exactly what we need. Even it might be something that you don't even know that exists. It might be something that's not even on your radar at this point. Now, I don't know who the 12th apostle is. And we're all going to find out someday. But I do believe that this principle is true, that sometimes what God has planned for us is different than what we would have ever come up for, come up with on, on our own, right? We would have said, okay, God, well, I guess it's got to be this or it's got to be this. But it's very possible that he would say, no, in my foreknowledge, in my loving provision for you, it's actually something that you don't even know about, something that's not even on your radar. On the other hand, if it does turn out that, uh, that Matthias wasn't actually the person who God intended to take the place of Judas, if God's true choice was actually Paul, well, then this story is a reminder of us of something. It's a reminder to us that even if we make bad decisions, it doesn't mess up God's plan. Isn't that good to know? That all of our mistakes and our kind of fumbling and our failures, all of our good intentions gone wrong, by God's grace, they all come out in the wash because God is gracious and providential. And that's so good to know, right? Because what it means is that we don't have to stress about the mistakes of our past. They're forgiven. God, God is in his providence, can bring good even out of bad. We don't have to also let fear of making mistakes paralyze us from making any decisions at all. We can trust in the grace of God and we can trust in the providence of God to, do, to draw straight lines with our crooked sticks. Let's read in verse 1 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together 
in one place. Pentecost was the second most important Jewish feast after Passover. Passover was really kind of the chief feast, and Pentecost was the second most important one. And Pentecost came 50 days after Passover, hence the name Pentecost, which simply means in Greek, 50. Pentecost was essentially a harvest festival. You know, the climate's different there in that Mediterranean region in Israel. And so this was when they would harvest the winter grains. They were able to grow grains and wheat throughout the winter. And this was the celebration of the completion of the harvest. And for that reason, Pentecost was also known as the Feast of Ingathering. According to Jewish tradition, Pentecost was also the day when Moses received the law from God on Mount Sinai. And we read in the book of Exodus that on that day when they received the law, 3,000 people died in Israel because of their sin. Pentecost was also one of the most well-attended of all the Jewish feasts because the weather was good. And the other thing was that people had a lot of money because they just harvested all their grain, taken them to market. They've got more money in their pockets so they can afford a trip to Jerusalem. Some people say it was the most well-attended feast in Jerusalem of the year. So the, the day of Pentecost came 10 days after Jesus' ascension into heaven. Now, I try to put myself in the head of those disciples. I don't know if I do it correctly, but you can just try to imagine what would have been going on in the heads of the disciples over the course of these 10 days. Jesus ascends into heaven. You know, you can imagine that that was pretty amazing. And they're, they're pretty, probably pretty pumped up as they return to Jerusalem. This promise of the Father's coming. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon us. We're going to be baptized with fire. And that first day, they return to Jerusalem all pumped up. And you can imagine that was probably the best prayer meeting that anyone's ever been to. They, they wait upon God. They're excited to receive this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But then, well, we don't want to say nothing happened because anytime you gather in prayer... You're accomplishing great things, but, but what they were hoping for didn't happen that day. And so then they continue waiting, and then it's day two. Well, maybe, maybe God's going to do it on the new day because he's a God of, of new beginnings, right? So day two, they're waiting, they're praying, they're excited, they're expectant, and still nothing. And then, oh, maybe it's going to be on the third day because the third day, just like Jesus, the resurrection, the third day, it's so symbolic. I see, God, I know what you're doing now. And the third day, they pray, they wait, and nothing and then the fourth day, and the fifth day, and the sixth day, maybe it'll be today. And you can imagine as time went on, their enthusiasm probably began to wane. They probably got a little bit tired in praying and waiting and probably started to wonder, hey, is this ever actually going to happen? Maybe we misunderstood him. Maybe it's not going to really happen the way that, that we imagined it would. And the seventh day, I mean, that would make sense, right, God? No. no the eighth day, the day of new beginnings, they pray. They wait, still, nothing. And now by day nine, you've got to imagine that maybe some of them are considering that maybe it's time to just go home. You see, over the course of these ten days, God was doing something in them. What he was doing was he was breaking them down and building them up. They were being broken down because they, had to be, they were being tested in waiting. They had to persevere in prayer and in faith. There was no instant gratification, and yet... They were being built up because they're spending all this time together in prayer. They're seeking God. They're being drawn together closer to God. Sometimes God keeps us waiting in prayer. Sometimes he doesn't give us what we ask for immediately because what he's doing is he's breaking us down and he's building us up. It's part of that process of shaping us and growing us. Let's read from verse 2 of Acts chapter 2. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. 
and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The sound of a mighty rushing wind filling this place is very significant because in both the Greek and Hebrew languages, the word for wind, the word for breath, the word for spirit, they're all the same word. And so this word, this would have been understood that this is a symbol of the spirit coming upon them. And it says that these tongues of fire divided and rested upon each and every one of them. Now what is that? It symbolizes something. This was what Jesus had promised them, that he would come and he would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And it says there that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This is incredibly significant, and here's why. Because in the Old Testament, we read about how the Holy Spirit would come at certain times for special reasons, and he would fill or he would come upon one person or two people at a time for a short time, for a specific reason, right? We read things like, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson because God had called them to do a particular task to save Israel. But here we see something different. What we have is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a broad outpouring, in which each and every one of these believers were individually filled with the Holy Spirit. And to symbolize that, these this tongues of fire divided and rested upon each and every one of them. Now, it could have been different, right? God could have just sent like a ball of fire to sit above the whole room. Or God could have made little flames that only so, sat on the heads of the twelve apostles, right? To indicate that these guys are special, that they are the leaders, that they have the Holy Spirit, but that's not what God did. No, God gave these tongues of fire to show that something different was happening, something new, that he was giving the gift of the Holy Spirit to each and every one of these disciples of Jesus Christ. It's important to recognize that in the history of Israel, this was completely unprecedented. Nothing like this had ever been seen before in the Bible, where all the people were individually filled with the Holy Spirit. This mighty rushing wind, these tongues of fire, the, those were only temporary phenomena to signify what was happening was an extraordinary event, but the real gift was the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the great message of this text is that the filling of the Holy Spirit is for each and every one of us. These were 120 ordinary people, but God saved them. He gave them a new identity. He baptized them with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and the rest is history. They went and they changed the world. They turned the world upside down. I read this great quote I want to share with you. It's been said, We will move this world not by criticism of it, nor by conformity to it, but by combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Let's read verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, 
Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them talking in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked and said, They are filled with new wine. Another sign that accompanied the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost was that these people, all of them began to speak in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. At this great festival where the streets of Jerusalem were jam-packed with people from all over the world, these Christians now began speaking about the mighty works of God in their own, uh, in the other people's native languages. These were languages, it's important to mention this. I mean, these were languages which the disciples had not previously studied. They, they had not previously known how to speak these languages. The Holy Spirit enabled them, we read, to do this as a sign to these people that something incredible, something new, something different was happening. And it absolutely worked. I mean, it got everybody's attention. And look at what happened next in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them and said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's taking this opportunity when he's got everybody's attention to to talk about this. Peter addresses the crowd now, not in a foreign language, but in a common language so that he can be understood by everyone. And he answers the question of what's going on around here. And once again, we see that Peter, he knows his Bible very well now. He, he says, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, that in the end times, God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Now, what's interesting about this prophecy of Joel it's a prophecy about the day of the Lord. Now, in many of the prophetic books of the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is a term which refers to the day of judgment, God's judgment on the earth. And Joel prophesied that before the day of judgment would come, that there would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh, not just for special people, not just for a special time, but upon all kinds of people from all walks of life, rich and poor, men and women, young and old. God will give his spirit to all who turn to him. So Peter says, look, the day of judgment is coming, but if you will turn to God, if you will call upon him, he will save you and he will pour out his spirit upon you. Peter's not only explaining what's happening, but he's using this as an opportunity to tell people to believe in Jesus and be saved. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter says, I want to turn the conversation to Jesus. I don't just want to talk about this phenomenon. I want to talk about Jesus. He says, you guys remember Jesus? God sent him to you, and you rejected him. You killed him, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of that. 
Verse 25, David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter says, do you guys remember the psalm? This is Psalm 16 that he's quoting here. He says, do you know what that psalm was talking about? David wasn't talking about himself because David, was, David died. He's buried. He was speaking prophetically about Jesus, that Jesus would die, but God wouldn't allow him to stay dead. He says, are you starting to understand, guys, that David was prophesying the resurrection of Jesus? Verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. David did not ascend into the heavens, for he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. David, again, he says, he says, David is speaking prophetically in the Psalms, and he's referring to one of his descendants, one of his grandchildren, great, great, great grandchildren, as Lord. Now, that's unusual. You wouldn't normally refer to one of your grandchildren as Lord. So who is this descendant of David that David calls Lord? He says, it's the Christ, the Messiah, the promised descendant of David who would be king over an eternal kingdom. He says, don't you get it, guys? Jesus of Nazareth, he was the Messiah, but you killed him. You rejected him. But God, according to the prophecy, didn't allow him to stay in the grave, but raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of that. And now Jesus has ascended into heaven, and he's going to come again. And it could happen any day. We don't know when it's going to happen. He's going to come again, and he's going to judge the earth. And guess what? That judgment includes you, because you rejected him who God sent you to be your Savior. You know, the same message that Peter preached on that day, on Pentecost, it applies today as well. It's true today as well. The day of judgment is coming. We don't know when it's coming, but it's coming. There will be a day when you will stand before God and give an account of your life, the things that you did that you shouldn't have done and the things that you didn't do that you should have done. And the one question which everything will come down to, that everything hinges upon is, what did you do with the person of Jesus Christ. God sent you a savior to save you from your sins, to save you from judgment, the judgment that you deserve, that I deserve, that we all deserve. The one question that matters is how have you responded? How have you responded to the savior that God sent you? How have you responded to Jesus? You can either accept him or you can reject him, but there's no middle ground. To not choose is to make a choice to not choose him. Right? To not receive him as your Lord and Savior is to reject him as your Lord and Savior. And, and these guys, they understood very clearly that they had rejected Jesus. If only more people in our day would understand that to not choose him is to not choose him, right? That it's to reject him. 
And look at how they responded in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? These are the words of people who truly understand the gravity of the situation. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what you need to do to be saved. Repent. You know what it means to repent? It's really simple. All it means is to change direction. That's all it means. You've been going, your life has been going one direction, pursuing certain things. To repent simply means to change direction, to start following Jesus. You used to think certain ways about Jesus, but to repent means to change your mind about Jesus, to think differently about him, to view him as your Lord and your Savior. You know, the gospel is not based on you needing to clean up your life so that you can be acceptable to God. The gospel is based simply on, it begins with simply changing your mind about Jesus. Peter not only encouraged the people to repent, but he encouraged them to be baptized. Don't only change your mind about Jesus, but go public about it. You need to. Being baptized is such an important step in the Christian life. It's this outward symbol that we make of the inward change which has taken place. The Bible says that baptism is a symbol of how you have been cleansed from your sins in Jesus Christ, of how the old person who you used to be has been put to death and you've been raised to new life in Christ. It's a symbol of induction into the covenant community of the disciples of Jesus Christ, the church. And I would encourage anyone who has not been baptized, if you're a believer, come talk to our leaders about it. We want to help you with that. But don't only change your mind about Jesus also be baptized and he says you too will receive the promise of the holy spirit and we're going to wrap up in these last two verses here for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the lord our god calls to himself and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying save yourselves from this crooked generation so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about three thousand souls the day of Pentecost, it was the festival of ingathering. It was the time of the great harvest. And on the day of Pentecost, there was a great ingathering, a great harvest of souls as many people put their faith in Jesus Christ and were baptized that day. And that church of 120 people exploded overnight and became 3,000 souls. On the day of Pentecost, Moses had received the law of God on Mount Sinai. And remember what happened? 3,000 people died in their sins. But on this day of Pentecost, God poured out his Holy Spirit on the church and 3,000 people were saved. Pentecost is considered the birthday of the church. It's the day of fulfillment when God poured out his Spirit on all flesh. In the days following Jesus' ascension, the disciples received a baptism by fire in more ways than one. They were given a huge task, a huge calling, they were also given the Holy Spirit, each of them individually, to fill them, to lead them, and to guide them and instruct them, and to empower them to carry out that which God had called them to do. And that same promise is true for you today as well, that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, baptism with fire to ignite your heart and light a fire within you that you might have God's heart and God's strength to carry out the callings that he's placed on your life. Would you please stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you for this great promise of the Holy Spirit. 
Lord, we thank you for your spirit who indwells us, Lord, your spirit who seals us, your spirit who leads us and guides us and empowers us. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would do that in our lives, that you would empower us to fill the missions and the callings that you've placed on our lives. Lord, thank you that you not only call us, but you empower us, that you send us, but you also give us the means to carry out that which you call us to do. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who needs to hear this message of repentance, needs to hear the message of the gospel, that there's a Savior, and the question is, what have you done with him? And Lord, may we be people who receive you. May we be people who live a lifetime of repentance, of constantly changing our thinking, changing direction, refocusing, recalibrating, and following after Jesus. We pray that you do that work in our hearts by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was brought to you by Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more media content or to find out more about our church, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. That's whitefieldschurch.com.